If you turn again in your Bibles, please, this time to the New Testament, 1 Peter chapter 2. If you're using a church Bible, that's page 1218, and in the larger print, 1888. 1 Peter chapter 2. Over the last two weeks, we've looked at chapter 1. Peter has reminded us what it means to be God's chosen people. He set out truths that not only encourage us, but they also guide our lives from day to day. The more we realize who we are, the more we will move away from the empty way of life we used to live. Back when we were ignorant of God's love for us. We were ignorant of the future he has in store for us. And this morning as we move into chapter 2, Peter continues to encourage and motivate us. And he does it by presenting Jesus Christ to us. Peter shows us Jesus is precious to God. And he also shows us that it's as we come to Jesus that we discover we are also precious to God. We're going to read chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. At the very end of chapter 1, Peter called us to persevere in our love for one another. And now he says in chapter 2, verse 1, Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. Now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices, acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone that causes people to stumble. And a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message. Which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people. A royal priesthood. A holy nation. God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is God's word. Peter does two things in these verses. In verses 1 to 3, He calls us to seek our satisfaction in Jesus. Then in verses 4 to 10, 
He shows us what we have in Jesus. So in verses 4 to 10, he gives us reason to do what verses 1 to 3 call us to do. First of all then, seek your satisfaction in Jesus. How does verse 1 fit with that? Well, it tells us where not to seek our satisfaction. Look at it again. Rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Some of those terms, I would guess, are obvious to us, but one or two of them might need explanation. Malice means holding a grudge. Someone has wronged us, or we believe they've wronged us, and we nurse our bad feelings towards them. We nurture and we stroke that bad blood so that it grows and develops into real animosity, genuine hatred towards someone else. Hypocrisy is the opposite of sincerity. It's being fake, saying one thing and doing another, being a different person in private from the person we are in public, being a different person online for the person we are at church. Slander is speaking evil of another person. Peter says we are to rid ourselves of all that kind of stuff. But notice he doesn't say get rid of it all because it's bad. That would be true, of course. He could have said that. But Peter says get rid of all that because you have something so much better than all that. If we think about it for a minute, why is it we are so tempted to hold on to our grudges and nurture them as if they're precious to us? Why is it that we choose sometimes to deceive others? Why is it we choose sometimes to say one thing while actually going and doing another? Why is it that sometimes we sit around just longing for what other people have? Envying them. Why is it that we sometimes spread juicy rumors around about other people? Or exaggerate the details to make them look bad? Why do we get involved in those things? Isn't it because we somehow believe there's pleasure to be found in them? Don't we act in those ways because we hope to get satisfaction from it? We don't want to let go of a grudge because, well, maybe we'll miss out on something. If we let go of it. Telling the truth can seem just like shooting yourself in the foot sometimes. Deceit can seem like a way to be more impressive in the eyes of other people. Slander seems like a way to lift ourselves a bit higher up by putting other people down a bit. We do all those things not because we want to hurt ourselves, but because we want to improve our situation. Who would spread bad reports about other people if they thought it was going to make their own situation worse? We do it in the hope of making things better for ourselves. But Peter says... Those are dead ends when it comes to satisfaction. And he says, surely you know that. 
You know the true source of satisfaction. It's in verse 3. You have tasted that the Lord is good. You've come to know by experience that Jesus satisfies. You've had a taste of the sweetness that comes from knowing him. The peace that comes from having your sins forgiven. The hope that comes into your life when you think of the future he has for you. You've had a taste of the strength that comes from knowing he is with you all the time, even in the darkest times. Peter says, you have tasted the genuine good life. So instead of seeking satisfaction through sin, seek your satisfaction by going after deeper knowledge and experience of Jesus. John Piper says, I know of no other way to triumph over sin long term than to gain a distaste for it because of a superior satisfaction in God. I know of no other way to triumph over sin long term than to gain a distaste for it because of a superior satisfaction in God. That's what Peter is saying in verses 1 and 3. And in verse 2, he tells us how to go about it. He calls us to an all-out pursuit of that superior satisfaction. Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. Think of a baby for a minute. Now don't think particularly about the size of the baby. Don't think particularly about the helplessness of the baby. Think of the overwhelming desire of a baby. Think of the way a baby craves what it wants. Babies know exactly what they want. They want their mother's milk. And they know when they want it. Often. And babies will not be satisfied unless they get their mother's milk and get it often. And so those of us who are Christians, Peter says, when I tell you to seek your satisfaction in Jesus, that's the kind of seeking I'm talking about. If you've tasted that the Lord is good, then go after more of him. Just like a baby goes after the milk that it craves. When Peter talks about pure spiritual milk, he's talking about knowing Jesus. He is the milk we're to crave. We go after more of him because we've already had a taste and it was good. And Peter says, as you go after more of him, the byproduct of that will be that you grow up in your salvation. Or you grow up to salvation. Again, that's how it works with babies. They crave the milk because it's good, and the result is they grow physically. They mature. We crave more of Jesus because he's good, and the result is we, go into, we grow into stronger, more mature Christians. And Peter's not suggesting that all the people who are going to read his letter are new Christians. This applies to all Christians. Seeking our satisfaction in Jesus will continue to produce growth in us. No matter how long it's been since we trusted in him for salvation. 
There's always more satisfaction to be finding. There's always more growth to be experienced and enjoyed. So here's a question for you and me. Since this is true, since no Christian would deny that the Lord is good, why would we spend any time at all looking for satisfaction in other places? Why would we put any hope in malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, or slander, or any other kind of sin? That they'll somehow give us salvation. And if the Lord is good, why would we allow ourselves to be perpetually distracted by other things? To the point that we hardly give him a thought, never mind craving more of him. We heard a moment ago from John Piper, well, he goes on to say, I am constantly astonished at people who say they believe in God, but live as though happiness were to be found by giving him 2% of their attention. As Christians, we go further than that. We go further than saying we believe in God. We say that we know him through his son, Jesus. So aren't we all the more astonished at ourselves when we live as though happiness were to be found by giving him 2% of our attention? If we've tasted that the Lord is good, how could it make sense to give him 2% of our attention or any other minor role in our lives? Surely the only thing that makes sense is to crave more of him. To go after him like a baby goes after its mother's milk. In verses 4 to 10, Peter works to help stir up our craving for more of Jesus. After encouraging us to seek our satisfaction in Jesus, now Peter says, realize what you have in Jesus. There are three truths highlighted for us in these verses. To begin with, verses 4 to 5 tell us that in Jesus we have a significant life. Look at verse 4. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. At the start of verse 4, Peter calls Jesus the living stone, which is striking, because if anything is guaranteed to be dead, surely it's got to be a stone. But by using the word stone, Peter wants us to think of the Old Testament temple. A building where God was truly present. And a building that was specially set aside for the worship of God. But when Jesus came, he came as a much greater living temple of God. So elsewhere in the New Testament, we're told this about Jesus. In Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. That's how Peter can call Jesus the living stone. 
The old house of God was made out of lifeless stones. But Jesus is the living house of God. Come to Jesus and you are coming to God. And Peter says, yes, Jesus was rejected by human beings. They had him crucified as a criminal. But God the Father, to God the Father, he is chosen and he is precious. And then after speaking about Jesus, Peter turns immediately to us and he gathers us up into the picture. He says, as we come to Jesus, we become living stones ourselves. Together, we're being built into a great flesh and blood temple of the living God. Later, Peter will explain the picture a bit more. It's not as if Jesus is one temple of God over here, and we are part of a separate temple that's being built over here. No, there's only one temple, and it all holds together in Jesus. He is the cornerstone. That's a significant word in this passage. Now, we might hear it and think, well, that means he's shoved off in the corner somewhere. But actually, it's the opposite. The cornerstone was the most important. Everything rested on the cornerstone. Everything held together because of the cornerstone. It was the most crucial part of the building. So by calling Jesus the cornerstone of this living temple, Peter is saying without him there would be no temple. He was the first stone to be laid in this living temple, and he'll always be the most important stone. The only reason we're a part of it is because we've come to him. Take him out of the picture and the whole thing falls apart. But as it is, we've come to him and we're being built together around him, connected to him, like bricks side by side. So when you read the Old Testament and you read about the glories of Solomon's temple... Now you know, that temple was only a foreshadowing of the true temple. And you are part of the true temple. The Apostle Paul, writing to the church in Corinth, says to them, Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple, and that God's Spirit lives among you? Do you see what this means for your life? It means your life has eternal, transcendent significance. No one builds a house without choosing the materials first. And God didn't start building his living temple hoping he would maybe find some bricks as he went along. No, the first brick in the temple was Jesus himself. According to verse 4, Jesus was the living stone Chosen by God in precious day. And that applies to you too. As another living stone. You also are chosen by God in precious day. You might not feel like it. You might not look like it. Especially to a world that rejects Jesus. You and I might look like nothing at all. But God chose you for the honor of being a living stone in his temple. And whatever you might think of these Christians sitting around you, however rough around the edges they might seem to you, 
they are also chosen precious stones in God's temple. Their lives, every single one of them, have eternal, transcendent significance. And at this point, having got us thinking now about a temple, Peter alters his focus a little bit from the bricks that make up the temple to the worship that's offered in the temple. Peter knows, as wonderful as it is to be aware that we are bricks in the temple, the danger is we might think our significance ends there. We might think, well, it's great to be a brick, but what use is a brick? A brick might be privileged to be there, but what does it contribute? But Peter wants us to see we do have a significant contribution to make. In verse 5, he shifts the picture slightly and he says, when we come to Jesus, we become part also of a holy priesthood. The Old Testament priests had significant work to do. The most significant work in all Israel. They offered sacrifices of worship to God. And Peter wants us to see the Old Testament priesthood, just like the Old Testament temple, it was only a foreshadowing of us. It was only a foreshadowing of the sacrifices of worship we offer to God. That's what verse 5 says. Now, just as there would be no living temple without Jesus, so there would be no holy priesthood without Jesus. Our sacrifices are only acceptable because they are offered through Jesus. His own sacrifice on the cross cleansed us from our sin. Otherwise, our sacrifices would be unacceptable to God. But what do we mean when we talk about offering spiritual sacrifices? The Old Testament priests, well, they mostly offered animals, sometimes grain and oil and incense. So what do we offer? Well, in other places, the New Testament explains it for us. In Romans chapter 12, we're told, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. So what we do with our hands, where we go with our feet, what we say with our lips, what we post online, how we use our mind and our talents and our time, all of it can be offered to God as a sacrifice of worship. There's more detail in the book of Hebrews. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. So, telling others about him, that is a sacrifice we can offer to God. And do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. Helping others in practical ways, that is a sacrifice of worship to God. Now, if we refuse to come to Jesus, but we're trying to do good deeds to impress God with our worthiness, then those good deeds are offensive to God. How could we imagine they would pay for our sin? 
But when we come to Jesus trusting him to pay for our sin and then offer our good deeds as a sacrifice of worship, then God delights in them. They're a pleasing sacrifice. In Jesus, we have a significant life. You have a significant life. And if you are unable to convince yourself about that, then allow God's word to convince you. By calling us living stones, Peter shows the significance you have. You are a part of God's temple. By calling us a holy priesthood, Peter shows the significance of our daily lives. Every day we have the opportunity to offer sacrifices acceptable to God. Not by putting on robes and lifting animals up onto an altar. No, by doing everything we do for the glory of God. Not the glory of ourselves. The most mundane work and service, all of it can be sacrifices of praise. And just before we move on, notice what verse 5 does not say about this priesthood. It does not say, some of you are a holy priesthood. Maybe you come from a religious background where priests were viewed as a kind of elite force in the church. There's the ordinary church member, and then on some higher, more holy level up here, there are the special ones, the priests. People who supposedly have special access to God and special privileges with God. Well, if that's the view you have of what a priest is, notice what the New Testament actually teaches about the priesthood. It teaches the priesthood of all believers. It doesn't say to God's people, some of you are priests and some aren't. Some of you have lives that are significant to God and some of you don't. No, this holy priesthood includes all Christians. In our own unique circumstances, there are sacrifices of worship we can bring to God and he is pleased. And that's not denying there's a place for leaders in the church. Later on in this letter, Peter will talk about elders He'll talk about them shepherding the church. And he'll even call the church to submit to the elders. But there's never any sense that the elders are in a different spiritual level than everyone else. Within the church, they have a particular responsibility to lead. But they have no special hotline to go. Every single believer can approach God's throne with equal confidence. We all have an equal welcome at God's throne. Realize what you have in Jesus. You have a significant life and you have a secure position. Look at verse 6. For in scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone. And the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. So here the focus moves from us as living stones and a holy priesthood. Now we're thinking again about the living stone, Jesus. 
Verse 6 is a quotation from the prophet Isaiah. And during his years of preaching and teaching, Jesus applied this Old Testament prophecy to himself. He said, this is talking about me. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell us that. So Peter has very good reason to do the same here. We've seen before that Zion is another name for Jerusalem. And we know Jerusalem was the city of God in the Old Testament. That's where the temple was. But now God is building something new, something eternal. And in verse 6, we're told again, Jesus is the chosen and precious cornerstone of that building. He's the key factor. It all rests on him. And so, the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. A few years back, a lot of people came up to retirement and discovered the retirement package they had been counting on had been decimated. For years, for decades, they had been paying into a retirement fund. They had been getting regular statements telling them things they were very happy to hear about what was ahead of them, telling them how much the fund would pay out when they retired. But many of those investments crashed and burned. Many people got half or even less than half what they'd been expecting all those years. Investments can go like that. In our minds, we can build up this picture of how our future is going to be, but when we get there, the reality can turn out a lot less secure than we thought it was going to be. So Peter wants us to see part of the significance of calling Jesus the cornerstone. It's to emphasize his reliability. He's not the corner sponge. He's not the corner foam. He's solid and enduring. When our lives are built on him, our position is secure. We will never ultimately be put to shame. Now it's true that in this life, other people might disappoint us bitterly. Other people might be ashamed of us in this world and during this life. But in Christ, we will never ultimately be put to shame. Our trust in him will be vindicated in the end. But what about those who reject Jesus? Verse 7 says, Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But now let's talk about the others. To those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone that causes people to stumble. And a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message. Which is also what they were destined for. Verse 7. The builders are all those who try to build a life without Jesus. They may reject him, Peter says. They may think he's unimportant. But that does not remove Jesus from his position. It just means that for them, Jesus does not become the secure and dependable foundation of their life. For them, he becomes the stone that causes them to stumble. 
He becomes the rock that makes them fall. He's still the cornerstone, but for them, for those who reject him, the cornerstone becomes a rock in their pathway. And he's not a little pebble. They can just step over and then get on with building a secure future for themselves. It doesn't work like that. If Jesus is not the cornerstone we build our lives on, then he is the unavoidable boulder that will ruin us. On Judgment Day, we will all be judged on the basis of what we did with Jesus. And those who rejected him will be put to shame. They will not stand. They will fall into everlasting destruction. And Peter says that was God's design. It didn't take God by surprise that some people would reject his son. In appointing Jesus to be the cornerstone, God was also appointing him to be the stone of stumbling. Jesus splits the world in two. And that was God's design. So why do some people stumble over Jesus? Verse 8 says, because they disobey the message. They're responsible for their disobedience. They're guilty of rejecting Jesus. And, Peter says, notice, this is also what they were destined for. Their disobedience doesn't catch God out or take him by surprise. He appointed Jesus to this dual role. The cornerstone of his living temple and the stumbling stone for those who reject him. Those who reject Jesus cannot marginalize him. They cannot do away with his significance. Those who reject him are going to find Jesus is the determining factor for their future just as much as he is for Christians. Remember, these words are here to encourage Christians. They certainly have a challenge for unbelievers to change their whole stance towards Jesus. But they're here primarily to reassure Christians. You who've come to Jesus, you have a secure position. You will never, ever be put to shame. And finally, in Jesus, you have the highest honor. In verses 9 and 10, Peter piles up these descriptions, one on top of another, thick and fast. He says, but you, you're not those who've rejected Jesus. You're not those whose lives will fall over him. You, verse 9, are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. In one sense, there's nothing new in these verses. Peter has used most of these descriptions earlier, but here he piles them up. 
like a pile of trump cards one after the other. He pins these on us as titles of honor. He reminds us what we used to be, not a people, not blessed by God's mercy. We lived in spiritual darkness. Earlier, Peter pointed to our ignorance and our empty way of life. We were trapped in a life that could only wither in the end. But now, we're a chosen people, holy, special to God. We live in God's wonderful light. We have the privilege of serving the king of the universe. And so, we're not just a priesthood, we are a royal priesthood. Because of Jesus, the sacrifices of praise that we offer are acceptable to God. They delight him. And we get to offer those sacrifices not only with our lips, but with our whole lives. And we get to offer them not just on Sundays, but every day, forever. So, if your head is bent down this morning... Because of your failure, maybe because of your weakness, because of your circumstances. If your head is bent down, if you're preoccupied with your own low opinion of yourself, maybe, then please swallow this medicine. Drink down these truths about God's opinion of you. Never mind what you think of yourself. Never mind what other people think of you. Believe what God says about you. And lift your head up. Find proper self-respect by believing what you are to God. Find proper self-confidence by believing what God is making of you. God's voice is the one for us to listen to. And he tells us this is what we have in his son Jesus Christ. This is what you have. We've tasted, we know he's good, and don't we want more of him? If you've been looking for satisfaction in other places, come back to Jesus and find it in him. If you've become half-hearted in what you expect to find in Jesus, then look to him for more than you can even imagine right now. He has more of himself to give than you could imagine. 